Amen. Please keep uh, standing and we'll uh, read God's Word. I want to read the passage this morning. If you have a copy of God's Word, I invite you to, to get that if you'd like. It's uh, Mark chapter 8. We're going to be in the first several verses of Mark chapter 8. Hear the Word of the Lord. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way and some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, how can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, how many loaves do you have? They said, seven. And he directed the crowd to sit on the ground, and he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people, and they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish. And having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people, and he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanthua. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Now, they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes do you not see, and having ears do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, 12. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? This is the word of the Lord. As you go to your seat, let me pray. Father, we ask you to be with us and help us to not have hardened hearts. We ask you to help us to understand, to give us eyes to see, ears to hear. We confess that we are a people prone to forget, prone to put on blinders ourselves or be afflicted with spiritual deafness. We know the enemy is desirous to do all these things among us, even this morning. But I pray, Spirit, that you uh, would indeed open our eyes, our ears, and our hearts to receive what you would have for us today. Namely, that you are good, that you are glorious, and worthy of all praise. We love you. We ask these things humbly in Christ. Amen. Well, it's good to be with you again this morning as we continue in the Gospel of Mark. And in many ways, we're at a pivotal point in the Gospel of Mark. Here, as we enter into chap chapter 8, uh, the, the disciples are with Jesus yet again. It's probably a very familiar story because we've already seen something akin to this a couple of chapters ago where uh, we have a crowd being sat down and being fed by Jesus and the disciples. 
Uh, But what we keep coming back to, and really what we've titled the entire series in the book of Mark is, who is Jesus? Who is this Jesus? What kind of kingdom is this? Do we understand the kingdom of God? And and so in many ways, this is the the tipping point in the gospel of Mark, because after this, uh, we're going to begin to see uh, increasingly that we do indeed understand who Jesus is in some ways, because he's going to be very explicit that he is the king that has come to die. He is the king that has come in weakness to die for his people. Uh, but, But today, we once again have a story of limited understanding from the disciples and so here, here's the truth for you and me today. Uh, this is true of everyone in here. We wish that we understood better than we do. We wish we understood many things better than we do. But when it comes to our faith, when it comes to Jesus, if we're honest, and we're always aiming for honesty, I pray that we are, gospel honesty would say, we understand Jesus, but we wish we understood him better. We have eyes to see. Those of us who are in the family of God, those of us who have had our hearts replaced, have had the spiritual blinders removed, we have seen the cross, we have understood the gospel to a certain degree, and yet we, if we're honest, we would say, I don't, I don't see it fully yet. There are times where it just seems like I get lost. I don't even understand what's happening or what Jesus is saying to me. I propose this morning that that from this passage that uh, God, and certainly here in the person of Jesus Christ, is incredibly, is profoundly patient with you and me. He is a patient God. He is one that's going to bear with a blind people. He is going to be one that bears with his people who even in moments and even in seasons have hardened hearts. So that is basically the main idea this morning. If you got a handout on the way in, you'll see there the main idea is Jesus is profoundly patient with his puzzled people. Jesus is profoundly patient with his puzzled people. Spoiler alert, that is everybody. Uh, So when I say puzzled people, I'm not about to tell you that there's a certain subset of Christians that are the puzzled and we are the ones that have it all together Uh, So when I say puzzled people, that is you and that is me. Now, again, we we open chapter 8 with a very familiar scene. We might ask the question, why are these two stories in the Bible, one in chapter 6 where Jesus has fed 5,000 people, and now we're told in Mark chapter 8 he has fed 4,000 people. There are actually some modern uh, um, theologians and commentators that actually think this was a mistake, that, that this story is kind of a repeat and it's actually just going back to the first story. I don't think that is the case case, uh, what's happening here is that this is a mainly Gentile region. And this story in Mark 8, this is mostly Gentiles. When you go back to Mark 6 and with, the G, with Jesus feeding the 5,000, that was a mostly Jewish setting. And now we are in a mostly Gentile setting. What we saw last week is that Jesus was pleased to feed under the table, if you will, in that parable, the Syrophoenician woman. You remember she is a Gentile coming to Jesus wanting his grace and mercy. And he references the fact that the bread is for the children, but even the crumbs come down and the dogs might eat the crumbs. 
And what we said last week is that the Gentiles uh, are feeding upon Christ, that this is what Jesus has come to do. He's come uh, to give this bread of life to feed and nourish his people, uh, first the Jews and then the Gentiles. So we see there in verse 2 that Jesus says, I have compassion on the crowd. He has compassion to the Jews and the Gentiles. And so we can actually read this story with the idea that this is a wonderful summary of the mission of Jesus Christ. If you were wondering, how could I articulate what Jesus came to do, sent from heaven to earth, Jesus came to feed and give grace and mercy and compassion to all, to the Jews and the Gentiles, to the nations, to save a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation from sure death as he offers himself. Because that's what these stories are pointing to. We, we see a lot about bread, but what it's pointing to is the bread of life, that Jesus has come to feed all people. He is the one that feeds his people to the utmost. And so uh, a familiar scene, uh, opening up the gospel to all peoples of the earth. And then in verse 10, we see that Jesus gets into a boat with his disciples and goes to a different district. And this one, obviously, because in verse 11, the Pharisees show up, this district that he goes to is one that is primi primarily Jewish, because they're the Pharisees. We've seen them several times in the gospel of Mark. And once again, the Pharisees show up testing Jesus, wanting to uh, not test him in a healthy way, but really uh, try to trip him up, try to discredit Jesus once again. And so as we talk about the profound patience that Jesus has for you and me, this section with the Pharisees reveals to us that there are indeed limits to the patience of God that this section shows us the limits of his patience with the Pharisees. That's the first blank on your handout, the limits of his patience. We read that the Pharisees want a sign. They're arguing with Jesus again. They want a sign from heaven that Jesus is indeed ordained by God to have this ministry. But again, they're not trying to uh, encourage Jesus or build him up. They're trying to discredit him. They're trying to humiliate him. They're trying to trap him. They want a sign from heaven that Jesus is who he says he is, that he is uh, the Messiah and, and whose authority is he under? He's doing all these things. He's feeding thousands of people miraculously. He's healing the sick. He's, he's uh, casting out demons. But under whose authority is he doing these things? And the Pharisees say, prove it. We want a sign. I don't believe it. And his response there in verse 12 is no. No. You don't get a sign. I want us to really think about the statement that the Pharisees are making here by, by saying this. It's really incredible. Here, here we have, uh, for eight chapters, seen Jesus time and time again move toward broken people, bring them healing, feed them, grace upon grace, and really think about what the Pharisees are saying by requesting this sign. What they're doing is, is they are saying that anyone who is sent from God, anyone who is ordained by God the Father, would never heal sick people, 
would never move toward the broken, would never cast out demons, especially from Gentiles, those people, never raise people from the dead. It's really incredible to think about the hardness of heart, the, the spiritual blindness, the spiritual illness that is present with the Pharisees, that they uh, would actually insinuate that uh, all those features of Jesus' ministry, his moving toward the broken, to the poor, feeding the hungry, that that's actually a feature of Satan. Because back in chapter 3, that's exactly what they insinuate, that Jesus is doing these things in the name of Satan. They're revealing their unrepentant hearts. They have terrible, terrible assertions over who God is and what God's heart is. A sign is not given to them because only a heart change would make it possible to see that Jesus has shown them the very heart of the Father. All these miracles, all the words, the teaching of Jesus has revealed that he is one with the Father, that he's revealed the Father's heart, and yet the Pharisees simply don't believe it. Sadly, there are still people, groups of people, tribes, if you will, that still think this way, still operate in a similar fashion to what we see here from the Pharisees, that they're still asking for a sign, they're still requesting proof some type of uh, ordaining from God himself, even as they observe the movement of Christ among his people. Even as in the world, we're, we're seeing uh, the Spirit on the move, people coming to faith, repenting of sin, there are still people today who would say, prove it. I don't believe that's, that's from God. These are the voices that we, we hear in the world. Uh, these are also voices that we will hear in God's church. We will hear this from time to time. This is the voice that, that would maybe tend to say, you would actually prove to be a real Christian if you fill in the blank. You'd be a real Christian if your church looked like this. You would be a faithful minister of the gospel if it actually looked this way instead of what I see. But if we understand that these voices that I'm talking about are, are not for you, certainly we can hear voices of critique and, and, and even encouragement and asking for help in, in our humility to grow in our faith. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about voices that aren't interested in helping you, aren't interested in growing you in your faith. They're actually voices that would call virtues vices. And they would call vices virtues. We, we see this happening all the time. These are the, these are the voices of the accuser. This is, what, this is what the Pharisees are actually doing in this passage is they are aligned with the kingdom of Satan. They're asking for a sign from Jesus because they don't believe what they've seen is actually from God. And what they are saying is, did God really say? Did God really send you? To do this, it's the voice of the accuser. I'm going to raise my hand to say that sometimes this is the voice, this is what comes out of my mouth, to my shame, that, that, that there are times as I look around uh, at various churches or look around uh, in the greater evangelical world, there are times where I would either say it out loud or if I don't say it out loud, I'd have it in my heart that I would scoff and be skeptical, even when I observe other Christians 
I don't believe it. Sometimes I'll direct that voice to myself. Sometimes I'll speak those types of uh, condemning words to myself. I'll scoff at myself. I'll, I'll say, if you were really a good pastor, then your church would look like X. If you were a good friend, then, uh, then your brother would actually see you as this. Does anyone else struggle in that sort of way? Where you are saying and speaking lies to yourself? Maybe even find yourself saying or speaking lies about or to other people? And the problem with this family is that you and I already have an accuser, and his name is Satan. So let us not align ourselves with the kingdom of darkness. Let us read this portion of Mark chapter 8 and be warned that the Pharisees reveal themselves to be in an unrepentant state, to be in league with the devil himself, and Jesus will not play their game. There are limits to his patience, and we see it here No sign will be given today. In fact, the only sign that will be given, the only sign that is necessary, as he says in the Gospel of Matthew, is that of Jonah, which is in the ground for three days and then resurrected from the dead. The cross is the sign. That sign is not yet to be given today. The Pharisees remain in their unrepentance. And so this is a warning. This is a warning that that God's patience will come to an end for those who are unrepentant in sin. This is the warning. This is the sobriety. This is the urgency of the message. Repent and believe. This is what Jesus himself has come to say. This is his kingdom. This is his ministry. Repent and believe in the gospel. What's so tragic, it's a simple word. It's a simple word right there at the very beginning of verse 13. You see it? Verse 13, and he left. He left them. He leaves them, gives them over to their foolishness as their hearts remain unchanged and unmoved. There are limits to Jesus' patience. Now, Jesus is once again in a boat there beginning in verse 14. This section shows us the enormity of his patience with the disciples. If he has limits to his patience with the Pharisees, what we are meant to see here in the following verses is the enormity, the the bigness, if you will, the richness of his patience with the disciples. That's the next blank on your handout, the enormity of his patience with the disciples. This is the third time, third time that we have seen the disciples in a boat in the book of Mark. See them there a lot. Seen them there uh, whenever there was a huge storm with Jesus in, in the boat with them. Uh, a couple of chapters ago, we, we walked through the passage where they're in the boat and Jesus is walking on the water. And now, here's the third time. The boat, the boat clearly is, and Mark wants us to see this, a place of testing. The boat, in all three times, is a place of testing for the disciples. And we see there right off the bat in verse 14, Mark tells us that they're arguing, they're concerned about the fact that they've only brought one loaf of bread. They're talking about bread. And Jesus, 
maybe is on the same wavelength as them. Maybe if you look at verse uh, 15, he is talking about leaven, which is part of bread. So maybe Jesus is hearing them talk about bread and says, hey, be careful about the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Watch out. Beware of those things. But what actually takes place here is is somewhat of a comical uh, dialogue back and forth. If you read this with that that lens, uh, it's almost like the who's on first routine from Abbott and Costello. You know that one? Like, who's on first? Yes. Well, who? Who's on first? One of them's talking about bread, like physical bread, and Jesus is talking about leaven, but they're not talking about the same thing. Jesus is talking about the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. What is this leaven? What does Jesus mean? What do these two groups have in common? The Pharisees, which are the religious leaders we've talked about so often, and we've also mentioned Herod, King Herod, uh, representing uh, the pagan world, uh, representing the licentiousness of the world, of the Roman, of the Roman world. Why, how and why would these two uh, groups uh, be leavened? Why is Jesus warning the disciples? What do they have in common? Well, clearly they're both unhappy with Jesus. I've already seen some of that in the Gospel of Mark already. They are murderous towards Jesus. There's no trust. There's no love for the Messiah. And so Jesus is warning the disciples how this type of thinking can spread quickly like a cancer through them. It's clear, though, that the disciples do not understand. They do not understand what Jesus is saying, and so clearly they are a puzzled people. And we so desire as we read this story for, for it to click and the disciples, for them to go, oh, yes. I understand what you're saying. We're just talking about this loaf of bread, but you're actually talking about something much deeper. But that's, that's not what we see here. We even see that they don't understand and that their hearts are hardened. It's funny how some moments in your childhood, which at the time was so innocuous, so small, but can stick out even years later, uh, I'll never forget the a time, I was probably 10 or 11, I was playing uh, the home version of Wheel of Fortune with my dad. We were super cool playing Wheel of Fortune. Uh, and, and the puzzle uh, had, had basically been all revealed. I think there were maybe one or two letters in the puzzle uh, that, that were not there, but I was ready to solve the puzzle. And so I, with great confidence, read out film at 11 teen. And my dad said, no, it's not film at 11 teen. And I looked at the puzzle and I was incredulous. I said, film at 11 teen. And he said, no. And I think I said it maybe four or five times emphatically, film at 11 teen. I'm looking at it right here. What else could it be? And then dad finally like took my finger and traced over the word 11. Film at 11. I, I didn't see it. I didn't see it. It was something that uh, I, I couldn't even explain. I'm looking at this word, and I kept reading 11, even though clearly it was 11. Have you ever been there? Where you're so sure about something, where you're so confident you know uh, what is going on, and yet uh, the people with you or someone with you continues to say you don't understand? 
Maybe it's even speaking a different language as you go to a foreign country. There's an essence of that where uh, you're so confident you're saying something right, and yet the person that you're talking to does not understand what you are saying. This is where the disciples are. They're kind of locked in to this type of thinking that is confusing them about what Jesus is actually wanting them to see. But there we, we see in this passage that Jesus has profound patience and with the precision of a counselor begins to ask several helpful questions this is just like a good counselor would do. This is like we read about in Proverbs 20, verse 5, that the man of understanding will draw out the depths of someone's heart. This is what Jesus is attempting to do. He's asking questions to get the disciples to really see, to have eyes to see. And so he asks really, really helpful questions here, including that question there in verse 18. Having eyes, do you not see? And what he's, what he's actually wanting us to see this morning and pointing to is the story that follows the one that we just are reading right now, and that's beginning in verse 22. Let me read this story. This story of Jesus healing a blind man is meant for the disciples, but it's also meant for us, and it shows us how patient and gracious our Savior really is. So this is Mark 8, beginning in verse 22. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes, and his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home saying, do not even enter the village. This is a strange story. We have to admit that right off the bat that uh, Jesus is uh, spitting on his fingers and touching eyes. Uh, we didn't cover it, but there's a story uh, right before our passage this morning of him doing something similar to a deaf man in his ears. And so there is something here that is peculiar that Jesus uh, is healing this man in this very particular way. And what, what we understand is that we know, based on who Jesus is and what we've already seen in the Gospel of Mark, that Jesus, if he wanted to, could have healed this man of blindness without even touching him. In fact, we've seen Jesus heal people without him even physically being present with them. But here in this story, he chooses not only to touch him once, but to touch him twice. And we also know that Jesus certainly because he is God, could heal this man completely the first time. But we see that he touches him once. The man is still having blurry vision. He sees people that look like trees. And so Jesus lays his hands on his eyes again, and he has his sight restored fully. What do we make of this? What does this mean? Well, Jesus is showing the disciples who he's already accused of being blind, who, is, who clearly lack perception and understanding. Jesus is showing the disciples, he's showing you and me, that he will give people understanding. And oftentimes, he is going to give us understanding through a repeated touch, through an ongoing, repeated acts of mercy. 
Does he heal? Does he save? Does he rescue in an instant? Yes. But if we're honest, our life is a life here filled with the need for Jesus to touch us over and over again until we get better sight, until we have understanding, better understanding of who he is. The disciples are having their sight gradually become clearer and clearer. In fact, that's really uh, how we can mark the second half of the Gospel of Mark. As we get into the rest of this book, we're going to see the disciples do have more understanding. In fact, we're going to see that next week when Peter says, you are the Christ. He understands. But then right after that, he doesn't understand, if you know the story we are going to be able to see in stages and increments. The unrepentant Pharisees and Herod, they will remain blind. Spiritual blindness is a terrible thing. The the physically blind know that they're blind, but the spiritual blinds don't. So we need help. Apart from the grace of God, we do not see But those of us who have faith in Christ do see now, albeit dimly. Paul talks about this in one of his letters, that that we see with dim eyes now, but we'll see with great clarity on that day that he comes and we see him face to face. We get glimpses of clarity from time to time now. This, this is our experience, that we, we see him, we see him and understand him, and then the very next moment we forget who he is, we don't see him, we see dimly now, we'll see with full clarity on that day that he comes back for us face to face. So what takeaways do we have from this part of Mark? What, what observations can we make? What implications does it have for our life? What do we make of this? Well, on one hand, we could read this story about uh, the disciples coming into the boat, forgetting all the bread except one loaf, and we can read it with, with, a, with a lens of, what's the big deal? It's just bread. Jesus, go back and get some more bread. Looks like they forgot bread. Turn around, go get some bread, and we're all good, right? It's, they're just hungry. Now, clearly, that's the presenting problem, but that's not where Jesus goes. Just like we talked about last week, he goes for the heart. There's something serious underneath that question about the bread. There's something distrusting in the disciples that that would lead them to even worry about the bread. Their hearts were being affected by the false teaching of the Pharisees and the temptation of the Herodians. How? Jesus is warning them, beware the leaven. Beware. This type of thinking It's taking over. I can already see it in the way that you're talking about this bread and I'm talking about something else. How does this leaven work itself through their lives and how does it work itself through our lives? Because the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod is not a past thing. It happens by believing that Jesus isn't good, that they could not trust him, that the true Messiah would not have compassion and grace for them, that they alone are all by themselves, that the only thing that they can consider is what's in the horizontal, the only, the only remedy, the only thing that's going to help me is what I can see out here. They don't look up. They're ruled by themselves, by, the, by self-rule, that that is the leaven of this world. That is the leaven of 
cold, dead religion. When we don't understand Jesus, we are going to be tempted to believe the lives of the world, our flesh, and the devil. When we don't have full spiritual sight, that's the perfect occasion for us to believe lies. And we have to know that about ourselves. That we get caught in these circumstances. We get caught in habitual sin. We've been uh, entrapped by the sin of another in our lives. We live in a broken world. We're scared. We're fearful. And that is the exact moment we tend to believe the lies. That's the exact moment that this leaven begins to activate in our heart. And what Jesus is saying here to the disciples, we can see it's actually pretty harsh. There's a rebuke. There's an there's a emphatic urgency with Jesus. Do you not understand? Are your hearts still hardened? And Jesus is pleading with the disciples, and this morning he is pleading with you and me. And what he is saying is, don't you dare believe that junk. Don't you dare believe the lies. Don't you dare believe that I don't have ultimate compassion and grace for you. Don't you for a second believe that I won't feed you my bread. Don't you for a second believe that I won't be patient with you. I'm in the boat. And I'm not going anywhere. Jesus is in the boat. He's saying, I will not give up on you. I have not left you. I'm here with you. I don't give up on my brothers and sisters. My father does not let go any that are his, any of his children. Stay with him to the end. Don't believe the lies. Don't let that leaven get into your heart. This is profound patience from Jesus. And oh, don't we need to hear this? Don't we so very often Believe the lies that he doesn't care. Believe the lies that he is going to leave us, that this is, the, this is the sixth time this week that I did this. This is the eighth time this week that I did this, and we fear that Jesus is going to get out of the boat and leave us. But he has profound patience for his people. His people like you and me who are puzzled who are blinded at times and who lack understanding. Jesus is fulfilling what the prophet Isaiah says in Isaiah 35, verses 3 through 5. Listen to this. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. God will come in vengeance is what Isaiah says. God will come in vengeance and yet it's not vengeance for you and me only by his grace. His son took on the vengeance for us in our place. Jesus wants us, his people, to see and hear. He wants us to know that our eyes have been opened and our ears have been unstopped and that on the cross, it's actually the Father that leaves him. It's the Father that, that removes his touch from Jesus. But he did this to save us. He did this so that we would have our sight restored 
And Jesus, blinded by darkness, in three days in the grave will emerge three days later in glorious resurrection. This is the gospel, and this is how it comes to save a people like you and me who are so prone to be puzzled and to misunderstand. So as we close, a couple of things by, by way of application that would love for us to be able to uh, grab hold of something and take with us as we leave this place and as, as means of reminder. In fact, that's exactly what we need. We need reminders constantly. We need reminders and we need presence. As we find ourselves in this fallen world in our own weakness and disobedience, we find ourselves constantly in these external circumstances that tend to overwhelm us. We've come in this morning, some of us are in the midst of an incredible difficult, incredibly difficult situation. We're scared, we're bewildered, we're, we're beset by guilt and shame because of ongoing sin in our life. We understand that sin is multiplying like leaven in our heart. We're making idols all the time. We're, we're reluctant to trust God. We deny weakness in favor of worldly strength. And just like with the disciples, Jesus knows these things need to be addressed. And so here's, here's the parting question I have for you, church, as we leave here today. How do we make the visible, which is right now invisible, how do we make visible the invisible Christ to one another? God has given us so many different means of grace God is generous in giving us his word and, and, the, uh, and the ability that we have as his people to commune with him, to pray to him. He hears us and answers our prayers. And yet, uh, what he has given us in one another is such a beautiful gift. What does it look like for us to take advantage of the fact that you and I are been, have been sent into one another's lives to help us to see as a means of grace? How do we image Jesus to one another? How do we climb into the boat with one another? How do, how, how do I climb into a boat with you and help you to see the beauties of Jesus? How do you do that for me? Because I will confess that there are going to be times, very likely this week, where I'm going to not see Jesus correctly. And I need your help. Here are the two things to grab onto patient reminders and patient presence. This is what I think the passage is showing us, how we model Christ to one another. We show up, we're there, we're present, and we don't leave, and we patiently remind one another of gospel truth. We remind one another who we are in Christ. What is our identity? Well, it's rooted in Jesus Christ. We've been given a new heart. We've been given eyes to see. I need that reminder. And then we are given over to pa patient presence, that we model Christ to one another, that we're able to uh, make visible Christ in one another's life. What a privilege that is. It's because we tend to forget. Not only do we tend to forget, really, if we're saying it more accurately, we choose to forget the wonderful truths of the gospel. And so we need each other to patiently remind us of this truth and to continue to show up for one another over and over again. So that's my exhortation to us as we leave this place this week. Will you show up? Will you be patiently present 
in my life and with one another? And will you patiently remind each other of the glorious truths of the gospel? Because we are a people that are prone to blindness. We are a people that are slow to understand. I'm going to close with a passage from 2 Peter. Because one of the things that I think is incredibly beautiful is Peter is in the boat here in Mark 8. Peter is one in whom Jesus is accusing of being blind, of having eyes but not seeing. In fact, you can argue that apart from Judas, who had ultimate blindness and unrepentance, that Peter probably has the hardest time among the disciples with really comprehending who, in fact, Jesus is fully. And so what an encouragement to you and me that years later, Peter would write this in his second letter. This is Peter chapter 1. And beginning in verse 5, he talks about uh, aspects of the Christian Uh, One who's been ransomed into new life to supplement their faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control. And he goes on and on and says, if you are seeing these qualities in your life and seeing them increasing as time goes on, then you are in some ways confirming that you indeed are a Christian and belong to Jesus Christ. But he says this in verse 9, For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind. You think Peter, was, when he wrote those words, was probably thinking about being on the boat with Jesus, knowing that he was blind then? And he goes on to say, beginning in verse 12, Therefore, I, always, I intend always to remind you of these qualities. There's the gospel reminder Though you know them, you know them, I know them, but we need reminders. You are established in the truth that you have. I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder. This is what Peter wants to do. This is what we're called to do to one another. I'm stirring us up as a way of reminder of who you are in Christ. I love this. Verse 14, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. Uh, That Peter has clarity, that Peter understands the call in his life as a believer in Christ. And may we have that similar calling, verified and reminded over and over again as we show up and are patient, just as our Savior has been ultimately patient with us, a puzzled people who fail to understand so often. But oh, let us go to him in prayer and thank him for his marvelous grace and mercy that we have in him. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful that you do not give up on a stubborn people, that you do not give up on people that choose to forgive, that as we walk in our own depravity and sin, that we in some ways choose spiritual blindness. Will you forgive us? Will you allow us to repent of such things and and have our eyes opened again to see the majesty of the gospel? That this is the work that you are pleased to do in our lives and hearts. But may we be ones that confess that we are slow to understand and we need your help to see you clearly. And thank you that you use one another, that you use your church, you use godly brothers and sisters to show up, to be present to not leave, but to remind, to
to remind us who we are in you and what you have done for us. To be able to image Christ to one another, to point us to Christ and all of the glorious riches of his mercy and grace. We are so grateful. We ask that you would continue to do this work in our hearts as we continue to worship you this morning. It's in Christ we pray. Amen.